So week two in this book of Ecclesiastes, this, this wisdom book. The book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes places us where the Bible places us. In between a great start and a great end. In the middle, a place of hardship, a place of longing, a place of disturbance and despair. A place that is our world's and is a place where people like us fit completely. The Bible starts with a, a paradise a garden God creates for mankind, where mankind is in relationship with God and things are good. That's the word that sums up everything. Good, very good. And it ends with the city of God and God's people assembled around the throne room, enjoying his goodness and splendor and reflecting it. But in the middle, there is brokenness. There is rebellion and there is all that goes along with that. Life is hard. And that's where this book firmly, squarely meets us. In this hard, broken middle. But we have a guide. We have a guide called the teacher. Libs just read to us from verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so what I want to do to start with is just ask this question, well, who is this preacher? He says that he is a preacher, a teacher. I'm not going to try and pronounce the Hebrew word. It begins with Q. King over Israel in Jerusalem. If we were to jump back to, to verse 1, the opening verse of this, this book, the narrator describes this teacher as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He's saying that he's Solomon. Or at least this is somebody who puts himself in Solomon's seat and Solomon's shoes. Well, well, who's Solomon? Who is this king, this son of David? Let me read some verses to you that describe who Solomon is. 1 Kings tells us, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world. And then he goes on. One Kings tells us this about Solomon. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. King Solomon was the wisest, richest man that the world had ever known. This was a man who was known for his wisdom and his wealth. There is nobody more equipped than Solomon to mine the depths of experience to find a point to this existence. In the middle of this mess of a world, who better than the wisest man and the richest man to explore what the point is? How do we live well in this world? And it's either Solomon that's our guide today, or it's somebody who's saying, it's like I am Solomon. I'm putting myself in Solomon's shoes as the wisest, richest man to ever live. 
We don't know definitively. There are some clues as we go through that it maybe is not actually Solomon himself. Even this verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel. Well, we know from Solomon's life, the only point he wasn't king once he'd become king was when he's dead. And it's difficult to write a book when you're dead. So maybe it's Solomon. Maybe it's somebody who's aping Solomon, who's saying, it's as though I'm Solomon, let me teach you. I don't think it makes too much difference. But the point that he's writing from, this point of wealth and wisdom, is quite crucial as we come to, to see what the teacher is going to look at today. For us in chapter 1 and 2, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. This search for satisfaction. So our first point is this, the great human pursuit. Look down again at verse 13. This is what the teacher says. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. The narrator last week, Ian, took us through it, has painted broad brushstrokes. This is what the world is like. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But now the preacher says, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to explore, just not looking from afar, but I'm going to do that zoom in on Google Maps. I'm going to go down to Street View, and actually beyond that, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to drive down to that street, I'm going to knock on the door, I'm going to go into the house, and I'm going to experience what this world is like. He's diving in. And what's his aim? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He is going off in the pursuit of pleasure. The preacher recognizes that there's something within him that says that pleasure is good. He recognizes something that all people across all times and history have said it's good to be happy. And I want more of happiness, I want more of pleasure surely that is what we are are here for what we are made for and so he walks us through in the light of his wisdom a pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of happiness I almost went with that title but I'm not sure I can spell happiness and I can't work out which one's the American way and which one's the the English way the proper way the pursuit of pleasure let's walk with him as we see where he goes to look for pleasure. Firstly, the party. Look at verse 2. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Because he tries laughter. But he also tries, verse 3, alcohol. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. It's not that he's out of his mind. But he's taking hold of, of alcohol, wine, and saying, come on, this makes life better. It frees me up to enjoy. He's certainly not the first person to have experienced that. He tries the party, and then he tries to become a property developer. Look down at verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. <coughs> Excuse me. I planted, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He moves into property and he builds and he's creative and he explores pleasure that way. Working hard to create. 
And then he tries possessions. Possessions of people in verse 7. Male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in his house. And then he tries animals. Look at again, verse, uh, end of verse 7. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed wealth, money. I amassed silver and gold for myself from the treasures of kings and provinces. And then entertainment. He has male and female singers and a harem as well. Well, that word, we're not quite sure what it means. Certainly, if this is Solomon, this could be referring to the wives, the many hundreds of wives and concubines. The party, the property, the possessions. He tries it all. And look down at verse 9, because this is the, the summary of his pursuit of pleasure. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He had it all. He tried it all. And it's interesting to note that as we read down into a book that is, you know, at least maybe 3,000 years old, it's the same things that, that we try. It's the same interest, the same pursuits that we, we naturally are attracted to. We too find pleasure in these things. In having, in holding, in enjoying, in possessing. But do they satisfy? Is he satisfied? Does he find that, that pleasure that he's looking for? You may have heard of Jim Carrey, the comedian. Famous, I guess, more 90s now. Maybe if you're a bit young, you won't have heard of him. He was in a, many films, a stand-up comedian. And I was reading about him the other day. Before he had his big break, he once wrote himself a check from himself for $10 million. And he believed that if he could, you know, it would be his measure of success if he could ever cash that check. I'm not sure quite how the bank would have, you know, functioned that, a bank check from himself to himself for $10 million. But he is a man who, who got it all. He got the fame. He got the success. He got the money. He said this, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Jim Carrey wasn't satisfied by being able to cash a check from his bank account for $10 million. And the teacher is not satisfied despite experiencing all this. Look at verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, all the gardens and lakes and houses, all the parties, all the possessions, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. He says it's, it's not that there, these things are without pleasure or without satisfaction. It's just that they don't last. They fill the hole for a moment. But they leave him wanting more and leaving him unsatisfied and unfulfilled. 
This is the preacher. This is Solomon or someone like. Somebody who is wiser and richer than anybody else. Somebody who is not a fool. He mentions twice that he's holding on to wisdom. It's not that he's doing it wrong. It's not that he doesn't have enough. He has it all and he says it. It's meaningless. Ecclesiastes is surely a book for our time. This is our world, isn't it? This is the people that we naturally are. These are the people that we interact with. This is our world on this great pursuit of happiness and pleasure. This is a message that resonates with us. And maybe it resonates with us because we go, well, I wish I had what he had. I wish it could be said of me that there was so much money that silver becomes too common. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? And yet we are people who constantly look to these same things to satisfy us. We're sort of people who are seeing the adverts for the new iPhone. And we think, oh, that would make my life much better. That will bring me pleasure. But we're the sort of people that in six months, nine months, a year will be going, oh, a new iPhone. That will make my life better. We're the sort of people that believe that a new relationship will bring us pleasure, so much pleasure that it will change our lives completely and we'll never be lonely again. We're the sort of people that think if my finances were just a little bit more secure, then I'd worry less, then I'd be more content. We're the sort of people who say, I don't want to be rich, I just need a little bit more than I have now. We're a people that are searching and seeking for pleasure. And yet, the teacher says to us, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, are we on this pursuit? Is this fully a description of us? Do we need to recognize the messages and the lies that the world are selling us? (coughs) Excuse me. That just a bit more, just something else, be it a car, a relationship, be it just different circumstances, then we'd be happy. The teacher says, look, I had it all. And it all wasn't enough. That is the great human pursuit. But from his happiness search, the preacher moves on. He moves on to a search for for wisdom. Look down at verses 12 to 14. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than those already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while a fool walks in darkness. He moves on and says, I'll just pursue wisdom. There's a a better way to live, a right way to live. 
Better to be a fool, a, a wise man than a fool. Better to walk in the light than in the darkness. And then he hits a problem. The permanent human problem. Death. Death can be avoided in our conversations. We cannot talk about death. We can try and hide it from our children, the fact that people die. We can mock death. We can mock him up as a man in a hood with a scythe and make cartoons about death. But death is ultimately certain for all that live. In that famous quote or misquote, two things in life are certain, death and taxes. That's what the preacher comes across here. Verse 14, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Death comes whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're good or bad, whether you voted leave or remain, whether you support United or Wednesday or even Leeds, whether you're a faithful person or an unfaithful person, we all end up buried or burnt. Food for the fire or food for worms. The fate of the fool will overtake me also, he says in verse 15. What then do I gain from being wise? The preacher is imagining a race. As he looks at himself and sees his wisdom, he looks to his left and he sees the fool. As they're lined up at the start line, he looks at this man. He thinks, wow, you're getting it all wrong. You don't look as though you've trained for this race at all. Look at your shoes. You're not even wearing like proper running shoes. And your shoelaces are untied. And you've still got your coat on. I'm going to win this race. And then he looks to his right and sees Usain Bolt. And realizes that it doesn't matter what that guy's wearing or what he's wearing. They're both losing the race. Death is coming because in the face of death well wisdom seems to melt away what is the point he says to himself the fate of the fool will overtake me also what then do I gain by being wise I said to myself this too is meaningless for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered the days have already come when both have been forgotten Like the fool, the wise too must die. What's the point in being smarter if it all ends the same way? What's the point in working harder? That's where he goes on next. To talk about what's the point in amassing wealth if the person who comes after you is a fool and will fritter it all away. Death comes over the horizon on the preacher and he despairs. He despairs. Verse 17, I hated life. Verse 23, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. And his inexperience and his pursuit of pleasure and meaning, he despairs. 
because what's the point if we're all going to die? If this is all there is, is this it? What's the point? And in the midst of all that, he sees that wisdom is better than folly. But what's the point? There's an account on Twitter that every day tweets the same thing. It's called the Daily Death Reminder. Someday you are going to die. I think it's designed to be quite lighthearted. I'm not sure it comes across that way. Someday you are going to die. All of us. Today, tomorrow, five years from now, we don't know. That knowledge is something that the preacher wants to bring to bear. And he experiences it, but now portrays it down for us. What do we do in the light of a certain death? What does that mean for all the things that we're running after, all the pleasures? What does it mean for our relationships? What does it mean for how or if I go to work tomorrow? Death is coming, surely, certainly, for each one of us. And it makes the preacher despair. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't quite turn it up to a happy notch. But he doesn't leave us there. Let's run down to, to verse 24. I took the first two titles, so the great human pursuit, the permanent human problem, from uh, one of the authors of a book on Ecclesiastes. He had a much more positive third title. And I just thought, I don't think he quite gets there. So we're going with this. Not quite a resolution. Hopefully it'll be better than it sounds. Verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All through this whole entire section that we're looking at today, God has been absent. There are hints that the preacher has not completely forgotten about God. He talks about wisdom and keeping his wisdom. It, it seems to indicate that he's not completely abandoned the God who made him, but he's certainly been pursuing it in a way that puts God to one side. But now he, he resolves it. He looks good God would towards God and says this but this is how God has ordained it the world of Ecclesiastes 2 is by God's design that there is a futility to living in this world which God is in control of this tension that he's brought himself to, that there is a wise way to live and a foolish way to live, but that death looms over both all decisions, both of these prospects, wisdom or folly. How does he resolve it? Well, he looks to God and says, 
this too I see is from the hand of God. Actually starts off at the start of our, our, our section. What a heavy burden. So 1 verse 13. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. So bracketing this whole section is this truth that God has for whatever reason, for some reason, determined that this is how things should be. He's determined that there should be frustration living in this world. That we should not be without a clue that things are not right. And so in the midst of all this, all this frustration, there is pleasure, there is satisfaction. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. There is some goodness, there are some scraps of hope. There's a reason that we do look to these things for for pleasure and for satisfaction because there is some to be found. But God has laid things out in this way, I think, to, to make us to want more. To realize that this is not it. This is not how things ought to be. Claire mentioned in, in the, the memory verse of the kids, didn't she? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. Ecclesiastes comes in that category. Ecclesiastes is useful for us. Living in this world of middleness in between the great start and the wonderful end in the midst of the brokenness is this futility, this lack of satisfaction and it's supposed to point us towards towards what that's the question that Ecclesiastes 2 I think is supposed to make us ask if we're not if we are not even equipped as the the preacher was to go on this great pleasure hunt if we don't have the same resources if we don't have the same wisdom we can't even get as good as he got and maybe just maybe we're not supposed to We're supposed to see the fleeting pleasures of this world and we're supposed to long for more. We're supposed to recognize the emptiness and the lack of satisfaction and instead of looking to the same things that give us a small hit but keep us coming back, always needing another, another, always needing more, we're supposed to say, I think we're supposed to be looking somewhere else for satisfaction. In Romans chapter 8, we're told about how God has subjected creation to futility. I.e., we live in a world that's never going to quite work. It's always going to be not quite. Isn't that what life is like? Never quite perfect. Never quite doing what it was promised. All the things that we buy, they're never quite as good as the adverts that we see on TV. You can go out and buy a BMW, but your life is not going to look like the advert. It's supposed to make us long for for more, for what the Bible calls redemption. For the world to be remade, renewed. 
this is what Ecclesiastes 2 is building into us. It's helping us to recognize the frustration of living in this world and it's, help, it's there to help us to long for more. Not more money, not better circumstances, but more. And so we could turn now to the New Testament and we can turn now to the people who come to Jesus. And what we find is a whole long list of people who are different in every way, but are unsatisfied. We see rich people coming to Jesus, unsatisfied by their wealth. We see people experiencing both health and ill health coming to Jesus, unsatisfied. Maybe perhaps most obviously we find a woman at a well who has invested in relationships, who has looked for her happiness and satisfaction in relationships, and she's still unsatisfied, and she comes looking for a drink. And Jesus says, I can give you a drink that will satisfy, which will mean that you never have to drink again. And he's talking about himself. Ecclesiastes 2 is is a precursor, is a foundational truth, recognizing our world as is and saying, we need to go to Jesus. We need more. Not more of the same, but we need more in somebody, in Jesus himself. So the question is, do we know Jesus? Do we know what it is to be satisfied in a way that the circumstances of this world cannot remove? I don't know where you're at this afternoon. As a church, our job, and my job as a preacher is to point you to Jesus. If we read Ecclesiastes 2 and go, yeah, this is my life. But I can search for all these things and I can continually search and have searched and I'm continually frustrated because they don't satisfy. My job is to say Jesus satisfies That's our testimony as a church. That's my testimony. But I also want to say to us, we can go back into this, can't we? As those that have found satisfaction in Jesus, we can go back into, into trying to find satisfaction in these things, the party, the possessions. Maybe not the property. Ecclesiastes 2 says this is the world we're in. We should want more. We should look to Jesus. But what do we do with death? Because death still looms, doesn't it, in this chapter. As it loomed over the preacher, so it looms over us. Some of us feel it more keenly than others. One of my hesitations, reservations about preaching Ecclesiastes is that I feel too young. There is something about being younger, which means death always feels way, way off in the distance. And something glorious about being in a church where there are people who are just, just more wise than me. Because you're just going, death's not as far off as you think. Not in a mean way, but just in a realistic way. We need people, younger people need that. 
We need people just to go, yeah, all those things you've been promised, they don't pan out in this life. Only Jesus. Older people generally have more of a grasp of the reality of, of death and living life in the, the reality, the impendingness of death. And we need to hear it. But as we look to Jesus as the one who satisfies, we look to Jesus as the one who conquers the death problem. Jesus is the one who rises from the dead. The first fruits, i.e. the first of all those who will be resurrected. There is life after death. It's funny when you hear those words, or at least for me, it makes me think of RE questions in school. Essay questions. What does your religion say about life after death? Do you believe in life after death? And it can feel quite trite and quite just like nominal. But when we see death and when we experience death and when you go to a funeral and you see the reality of somebody taken away and a life that is just cut to the fact that Jesus says I am the resurrection and all those who trust in Jesus will be raised to new life to live forever one moment in history everything changes because Jesus rises never to die again but suddenly that puts a whole new light on this broken world that there is a resurrection Jesus rose and all those who are trusting in Jesus will rise. There will come a day in the future when Christ will return for his church and the dead will be raised. And the church will be assembled to worship Christ and to live in the new heavens and the new earth. A life that no longer is marred by sin. We sang those words early, didn't we? Saved to sin no more. A future promise for the church. No longer a life of futility. No longer a life marred by our own brokenness. Our own sinfulness. Our own rejection of God. A life that is no longer time bound and death headed. But it hinges on this. Did Jesus rise? And are you trusting in him so that you will rise too? Will you come to Jesus for satisfaction and for resurrection? Let me pray.